The following podcast is part of the 6040 Network. Hello and welcome to Everything Small Business, your shortcut to start, build, manage and grow your small business. I'm Cherie and in today's episode, I catch up with Kristen Buchanan, CEO and founder of Edify. This is an AI platform that builds high-performing engineering teams, starting with their onboarding. This is part of our mini-series called Share Your Small Business Story. And in this episode, Kristen shares her experience on engineering onboarding and developer enablement. We chat about her journey from being a consultant to a SaaS CEO and her thoughts on the future direction of software development. So Kristen, welcome to the show. It's lovely to meet you. I feel like I'm always meeting cool people off of Twitter. <laughs> I know it's new to me. I've never been quite a big Twitter user and I've sort of stayed away from it because of all of the politics and Very toxic. drama. Yeah. yeah. And so it's always been, I've, I've never really been all that into it. And then I had a number of friends, mostly in the States that are on tax Twitter. So, cause yeah. I'm an accountant. And so we were sort of having a look through that. I'm like, actually, this is pretty cool. Then when you start to find, I guess, the little groups that resonate, you find an amazing group of people. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think you have to do some curating and be careful what you follow and who you follow. And it was easier many years ago, but you know, it is what it is. I try not to be on there too frequently, but every now and then I have a nice conversation with somebody or I post something that strikes a chord and it creates a good conversation. So I'm excited to have this conversation with you. So, I mean, basically our podcast is called Everything Small Business. And I know that yours isn't small, but it's, I loved the approach and I love honest and open discussions. And one of our actual catch calls here is lessons learned, lessons shared. And that's a big thing for us. And then when I saw your post, you know, talking about it would be fantastic to actually be able to have an open conversation about sort of, you know, the good stuff, but as well as the not so flash stuff as well, because that happens, you know, and without sort of annoying other people or creating issues with investors, I'm like, oh my gosh, that is so true. And it's a really good topic for a conversation, I thought. So that's why Absolutely. we invited. I agree. Yeah. It was really interesting to me. There was kind of a split response perhaps to my tweet about that. And a lot of people presumed that I was looking for more support which not, I don't want to sound haughty or vain, but I actually have an amazing support network. What I really wanted to do was actually share a lesson learned, you know, and say, oh, okay, this is something that I did that maybe didn't work out for me. Maybe you can learn from it, maybe not, but here it is publicly, you know, as a record. And you're right. It is, it can be very difficult to, you know, put things out in the world because you don't want to harm a former employee or you don't want to have the optics of an investor, you know, seeing something that you wish that they didn't interpret that way. You know, it's an interesting thing. And I completely understand your podcast is typically focused on kind of small business. Edify is pretty little in terms of our business size. We're about six people. And I ran a small business for not in the venture capital world for about seven years before this. So I have some experience on both sides of the table. No, that's fantastic. I mean, as having, obviously I was doing a bit of LinkedIn stalking and, you know, Twitter bio having a look and what you do is so interesting because onboarding is actually one of those challenging areas that getting it wrong. I'm not sure what the rules are like in the States, but in Australia, if you get this wrong, aside from destroying the culture, there's a number of quite serious legal obligations that come with it that you'll get very big smacks for. So when it's seeing this process and then sort of using it to create the culture, and then further this morning, seeing your share about, you know, that 
tool, the donut tool. I'd never heard of that before. I guess that's one of those things that having that random ability to connect with a bigger team is fantastic. Yeah. And I think that's something yeah. that you sort of lack a little bit when you are in small business, that ability to just go out to a team and access different knowledge and different experiences from the past. Yeah, absolutely. And I would be curious one day maybe to hear more about what you're talking about where you are. There's not a ton of, you know, if a company in the, in the States doesn't do onboarding well, aside from making sure that you receive your paycheck and get signed up for healthcare, things like that. There's not a lot of, or should I say like recourse for an employee if they feel like they've not been trained well. I think Unfortunately, that is one of the challenges. I think that there's not a lot of incentive for companies to really invest in onboarding until they think they must do it, right? And the the must do it usually comes when there's sort of linchpin moments, like they're losing a lot of employees and they finally sorted out that it is probably because they didn't get onboarded well, or they are really rapidly growing and they actually are kind of a wash in new hires and, and need to help. I need to have some help there. So I wish there was a more proactive approach because I think it is much healthier for the individual, right? And for the team, right? But I'm sure we'll get into that kind of thing as well. Would you like to tell us a bit about your background and your experience? And I guess what led you to starting off with Edify? Yeah, absolutely. So I come from a strange field of museum education, actually, and art history. But Within that course of study, I really specialized in adult learning outside of a traditional classroom environment. And so within that, I was really looking into how do our brains work and how do we learn new things, especially in such a changing environment over the last, you know, say 10, 15 years. And I think we're very much still learning how we are responding right now to the ways and the tools that are around us, that technology is moving so quickly that academic research is not necessarily catching up to how our brains are even changing brain chemistry, even our neural pathways. So I've always been fascinated with how we actually learn in these environments and most of us, of course, have to work. And one of the things that I kind of through a meandering path of working in education, design and nonprofits and museums, and eventually going into sort of corporate learning and development, I started my first business in 2014 to try to support other companies, other small businesses, and even larger organizations with learning and development. And I kind of accidentally fell into engineering onboarding. I had a couple of friends who were starting new jobs in that area, and they were having a hard time really kind of figuring out where to start. It was overwhelming to them. Uh, lots of technical information. There wasn't a lot of support necessarily developed for them. And so we would just sit down to coffee and I offered them some ideas. You know, here's what Socratic questioning is. Here are some frameworks and scaffolding for how adults learn. Maybe you can manage up and have your manager help you get the answers to these questions. And turns out that was useful to them, thankfully. And then after seeing that kind of success, I realized you know, I could probably pitch this and package it as a service to companies rather than one-off helping people through coffee, which was also not paying my bills. And I had just started this little baby startup business or small business. And so I almost literally went door to door in the Portland, Oregon kind of space in the tech space and really just started to pitch that. And a few companies kind of believed me and thought, you know, this is interesting. And that kind of started a career of doing engineering onboarding for technical organizations. And that just kind of blossomed into 
a lot of support for technical organizations, sometimes almost being like a therapist to a VP of engineering, helping after really, you know, too many or negative reorgs of an organization. And the shorter kind of end to this is that over that time, I realized there was a real need for tooling around technical learning and technical onboarding. And I watched a lot of engineering teams, you know, I would build them their onboarding program and it would stay static. It would be using tools that were not really designed to deliver learning experiences. Even tools on the market that were designed to deliver learning experiences weren't really what the engineers needed. And so there was kind of this gap or this void in the market and some mentors and even customers started to kind of challenge me and ask me about that in 2018 and 2019. And by the end of 2019, I had done some kind of soul searching and I had even taken a small sabbatical and realized, I think that there's an opportunity to create a software company here. And so I closed my consultancy, pulled some money out to bootstrap the first version of our software in the summer of 2020. And now I can't believe that it's early 2022 and we have a team around us. We've been able to raise some pre-seed capital and get an MVP and out to market and grow and, and move out of MVP. So that's a little bit about how I got here. That's fantastic. Actually, there's a lot to unpack there. My partner, he's a leadership coach. So he talks a lot about brain and the different chemicals that operate inside it and how to you know, create or curate effects in order to create fantastic environments for which people can actually flourish. So it was really interesting that you're bringing the two together in an onboarding capacity as well. Yeah, that conversation I could have for a long time that it is not just you know, gosh, here's your checklist. Here's your list of links, right? Things that can help you figure out your working environment, whether you're in an actual physical office, although many of us are not and have not been for a long time at this point, it's even harder to do that, harder to create a a welcoming, psychologically safe environment where people are motivated to learn new things and reinforced in their learning process, right? It is very much dependent on the people around them and the kind of support or lack thereof that they're being offered. And I think this is something that really gets taken for granted in startups a lot and in the technical kind of ecosystem that, you know, oh gosh, we're paying our engineers so well. We give you, you know, back in the days of offices, there's so many, there's snacks, there's all these perks. We have unlimited PTO. And those are interesting to most humans, but they're not the reasons that people actually end up staying and engaging with a role and with content, you know, of their job, because those things are not, they're too extrinsically motivating. And ultimately, most people are looking to connect with their work in a real intrinsic way. And do you find that the software that you've written actually helps people bridge that gap between, I guess, what might be perceived as extrinsic motivation to that, yeah, I'm here and this is fantastic. I might have started for this reason, but I'm staying because of this. I would like to think so. I think what Edify does as a piece of software is really allows a team to design a technical learning path, whether that is for new hire onboarding or changing teams and you want to re-onboard into a new team. A team can design a kind of a technical learning path 
put in information that's relevant. And Edify helps to stage out the delivery of that information over the platform called Slack, right? And that is what we find with most of our users who are engineers. You know, they are in Slack all the time. And so they're constantly getting the support from Edify to say, hey, you might want to check out this document. It could be helpful for you. Or here's what's next on your plate. And then Edify is almost building a relationship with this person that Edify can help switchboard them, if you will, to other people in the organization that can help them if they get stuck or buddies who can kind of help them understand the ropes. You know, I always kind of joke that when somebody says, well, so-and-so will show you the ropes, like the ropes are always the tacit pieces of information about how we interact as humans that often are very difficult to write down. And in many circumstances are never written down. These are the things like professional behaviors and norms and how we communicate with one another that actually can be real attractors or detractors for a person staying in a role. So we do find that if you know a new hire goes through their experience with Edify and in, in their onboarding, they do tend to rate their job higher than individuals who didn't. So we would like to see that continue and we'd like to see that usage of Edify certainly be kind of a core reason that someone is happy and motivated in their role. It's kind of, I think, you know, it's that sharing of the organizational knowledge that gets accumulated over a long period of time and being able to dissect that and transfer it in an easy to consume way, as opposed to just, here's a two inch thick book of go hard. This is your first week of what you're doing. So I guess what's been your journey then from being a consultant, so in small business to now being a CEO of a software company? Oh gosh, it's a long journey, even in a short period of time. So I'll try to (laughs) pull the sort of too long, didn't read version of that. So my journey moving from consultant to founder slash CEO has been long, but interesting, even in just really the kind of two years that I've been doing it, 2020 and 2021. And, you know, it's interesting in Edify's first year of being kind of quote funded, which was last year, I would say our bootstrapped year was 2020. Last year, we actually had investor funding, continue to have investor funding right now. I realized actually that I brought a lot of best practices that worked very well for small business that was sort of revenue focused into my startup. And there's not, I'm not going to say that that, that's a bad thing, but what it did was actually predispose the structure of the business and my team to over-index on process, documentation, doing things in a way that were not necessarily geared at how a startup, a venture-funded startup has to work. We had been very good and continue to be, I'm grateful for my team in doing this, but we've been very good at customer discovery and MVPs and lean movement and being very nimble around our product development, all things that are important in a venture-funded startup, because really what you're trying to do is essentially beat the clock on how quickly you can fail so that you find one success moment, right? That you can keep building on. And over time, I realized, you know, my running of a small business was valuable in some ways, right? I can really understand the finances of the business. I can really understand, you know, the processes, the standard operating procedures that were useful in my first company and bring some of that over. But I also realized toward quarter four of last year, I might've over-indexed a little bit, like I said, on some of that process. And so we've actually been dismantling a little bit of our process in the last three to four months, I'd say, in terms of 
breaking down even some silos that had developed in our team. You know, so-and-so communicates with so-and-so about this topic, and then it gets written out in a doc, and then that gets emailed out, and that gets then added to the investor email. And it's like six steps when it could be one, right? So I think that's been an interesting theme that I've noticed. Okay. And so with the use of your services, how do you go marrying sort of, I guess, the corporate requirements with the technical requirements and then the operational needs of the business? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. So, and we get kind of variants of this question a lot that, well, every business is really different. Their technical stack is really different. Their engineering org is very different. How do you make a product that would work for all of that? And what we've actually done is gone back to learning science, right? When I was a consultant, I used to have, uh, I would bring these four poster boards and blocks and blocks of post-it notes. And sometimes I'd buy my team's pizza and I would, you know, be sitting in my client's office with all of their engineering managers, sometimes 10 or 12 people in a room. And I would put up these four post-it or poster boards on the walls and each of the boards had a title. So one was product. What do we make? One is process. How do we make it? One is professional expectations. How do we behave while we're making it? And one is tech stack and tooling. How do we actually build the thing? And what I would do is set that timer for 20 minutes and invite everybody in the room to just fill up as many post-it notes as possible and put them on each post-it note or poster board, 20 minutes for each. And funny enough, it would produce dozens, if not hundreds of post-it notes per poster. And I would take all of that back to my office and kind of deduplicate them and put them into a spreadsheet. And sometimes I'd find that I kind of called these little moments, each post-it note was called a learning touch point. And those learning touch points could be, you know, something like set up your development environment. It could be understand how we use Kubernetes, understand our security protocols. And over many years of doing this with lots of different companies, I found there was enough of a pattern in how engineering teams worked and the kinds of information that they really needed their new hires to have in order for them to be successful, that I could actually pull those patterns. And so what Edify has done in our software is offered two routes for this, right? You can use our template that is kind of a best practices 30-day template. Your engineer should know these things in this order. And then you could also go and build your own from scratch. If you have, let's say, a checklist that's you know something that you've already built, your onboarding it already works, but you want to execute it, orchestrate it a little bit better. So that gives our customers a lot of flexibility because they don't have to sort of go into this one path that has been predefined for them. They can adapt our tool to their circumstances. So you just touched on 30 days there, which made me think, well, what's the optimum time to onboard? I mean, learning never, never ends. Like that will go through the entire period of time. But have you found an optimal time to onboard someone effectively? Yes, I think that it's 90 days, actually. And what we find is interesting. In the engineering world, there are engineering managers and leaders who really feel like sometimes you should be onboarded in a week. You might be onboarded in a day, right? And four weeks is generally the sort of accepted what people think, how long they think it's taking their new hires to get up to speed. What we actually see with research 
from both Edify and other places in the industry is it takes more like three months for somebody to actually lose their training wheels to gain the confidence that they need to make the decisions that they'll need to reach what we call time to productivity, meaning they don't have to lean on somebody else for support in making their day-to-day decisions and their role. Obviously, they should be networked and connected to other people. We don't want them working in isolation, but it generally takes three months or so for that. I would argue that a really well-built out program might last a year, that you might actually invite a new hire to engage on a lot of different learning topics throughout their first year. And that even can continue and kind of roll over into that person being a buddy or a guide for the next new hire. And you can do this at whatever scale you're working at, right? Edify has users that are companies of 10 people. And we have users of companies that are hundreds, if not thousands of people. And so it really can be adapted depending on kind of the needs of your organization. There's actually two really good things. I wrote down a little note there was, I guess you never really know something until you have to teach somebody else. So that I understand completely the 12 month cycle, but I was going to ask you the question of, well, how do you actually define onboarding? Because obviously everybody defines it differently. And just hearing you say, well, a manager might expect a day or a week. And then you sort of progressed and said, well, it's really time to productivity where they can sort of, you know, operate without the training wheels, so to speak. So I guess with that, Do you find that certain types of managers or sizes of organizations actually lend themselves better to getting the new hire to the point of the time to productivity? Yeah, I think there's an interesting bell curve, actually, where you see really small organizations, perhaps even the size of Edify, you know, sub 20 employees, right, where things are actually moving too quickly to be documented, right? And then what you really, you actually need sort of a different type of employee. And this is probably a whole different conversation in and of itself. You know, there are different types of personalities that work better in different environments, right? For example, at at Edify, we really talk in our interview process and our values about the concept of VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, chaos, and ambiguity. And somebody who really likes a stable environment, maybe several hundred employees where they know what their work's going to be every day is pretty typical for them. They're probably not going to be happy at a a place like Edify because things are very volatile, right? We might learn something with a customer that changes our perspective in less than 24 hours, sometimes even less than 20 minutes. And so that can be really challenging. So I think that there are those organizations that for whom onboarding should be intentional, even small organizations, but it may be lacking in documentation and that's okay. That's normal. And then there's really this big center bit of orgs that I would say are 50 people to several hundred, if not a few thousand that have the wherewithal, if you will, the infrastructure to start documenting things. There is a little bit of predictability in the way that people should behave and the kind of product that we're putting out in the world, whether it's a software product or something else. And there's really no excuse for not having onboarding in my mind. And I think Edify works best for companies like that. I think on the other side of that bell curve, there are actually organizations that I see that are so large that they almost don't have to worry about attrition and they don't have to worry about whether or not they did a good job onboarding somebody because people will always want to come and work there. I think my poster child example is Amazon and AWS. Both the Amazon org and the AWS org kind of notoriously bad at technical onboarding because the attitude is sink or swim. 
the attitude is, you know, you'll be able to join here. If you are a good engineer, then you'll figure it out, right? You'll just find out somehow through osmosis how to do this work. Obviously, I have opinions about that, but I think that they don't feel like they have to invest in onboarding because there's always another college grad who's looking to take that job. I don't know that that's always going to be true or that that's a good strategy for employee development or or retention, but I do see that happening in, in very, very large organizations. So how do you think then that the hiring process, there should be a better integration then between hiring and then the onboarding because the both done well lead to successful engagement of the employee, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that onboarding actually begins in truth with the sort of, some people from the HR world would call it employee you know, attraction, that kind of recruiting phase where you're trying to build an employer brand. And that can be, you can really go heavy on building a brand for future employees, or you can just do a light touch and think about the way that you write your job description, right? Even any of that signaling that you're putting out in the world, you are effectively onboarding humans into your company, right? They may not work for you yet, but they're going to read the tone, the voice, the images on your website, the kinds of customers you work with, that all is going to go into what their opinion of you is, right? And some people will self-opt out, you know, certain cultures, they they might perceive that that's not for them. Um, And sometimes we want that and sometimes we don't want that, right? And that's why there, in in my view, has been such a focus on how our job descriptions are written. Is there biased language in a job description, something like that? Because that is part of onboarding, right? They're going to go ideally through the application process, and then they're going to go through an interview process. If you're mishandling your interview process and making it difficult for somebody to actually engage, then why would they want to stay loyal to this company, right? And so you'll have spent tens of thousands of dollars in recruiting them and going through this process of interviewing them just for them six to 18 months later to say, yeah, that was a good try. I kind of enjoyed that for a little bit, which unfortunately is pretty common and getting even more so right now with the great resignation. Yeah, we hear that for sure. And I think that that's not just engineering or even tech-based, that, that's sort of across the board. So I, I actually really do like the fact that you've come from a small business background as well as sort of being in the tech space as well. So I guess obviously there's lessons to be learned in both of the journeys. Did you find one more challenging than the other? That is also a very good question. And nobody's really asked me that before. <laughs> you know, I think that everything is relative, actually. That's not a, don't mean that to be sort of a cop-out answer. But, you know, I will say that there, when I was building that business, there was so much, especially in the early years, I didn't know, am I going to close this contract? Am I going to be able to pay my rent in three months? You know, <laughs> when you're building a small business at the very beginning of it. And sometimes even there are hard patches, especially for service-based businesses. I have so many friends and colleagues who have other service-based businesses like designers, other things like that. And you go through ups and downs that sometimes track economically with what's happening outside of your business. But it's hard to learn how to be good at sales. It's hard to learn how to manage people in your own company when either you haven't been a manager before or you've only managed for some other company, right? Those things are all hard experiences. But I think if you bring a learning lens to it and you welcome that challenge, it can be easier. On the other hand, you know, growing this company from a sort of a venture-funded startup perspective. It is challenging in that probably the biggest thing to know is that you have 
a persona for investors and you have a persona for customers. And you might actually be telling very different stories to both. And I think that very few people are actually founders or investors are very honest about how difficult that is to hold two very complex concepts in your brain at the literally the same time, right? That when you're going out, say, to fundraise, you might be telling a 10-year vision that you have no idea whether or not you'll ever be able to reach. You have the ambition to reach it, but you're sort of telling this story about how you're going to be a multi-billion dollar company. And then you turn right around and you do a customer demo and you're focused on the first one, you know, 90th of your product vision, right? And, you know, the very smallest component of it. And you're trying to help that customer find value in that solution, even though it's the smallest iteration of your big vision, right? And so holding those two complex ideas is really hard. The act of fundraising is very hard (laughs) for sure. And even, you know, as a CEO now, I'm learning how to manage engineering teams, which I had not done in the past, right? I consulted to engineering teams, but actually managing one is a whole different ball game. So it really just depends on where your skill sets are coming from. You know, if you've been a technical person and you're starting a technical role, you know, for example, you don't want to read any of the code that I've ever written. I'm not really a software engineer. <laughs> I just work with them a lot and care a lot about how they work because I think that the world is using a lot more software, right? And if software engineers don't have healthy work environments, we might not get healthy software for the world. So without droning on, I think it's really different. And unfortunately, I don't know a ton of people who have gone from service to software. I think there are a lot out in in the world, but there's not really a great place for us to gather and talk about how these two things are different. Mm. I definitely would agree with that. Like trying to find somebody else actually to share that story. So I'm technically an accountant. That's my profession and career. But over the last three years, we've been developing a software company that is designed to support small business. So exactly what you are saying, that you're selling the big vision in order to keep even yourself motivated, we're, we're internally funded at the moment. So we actually haven't had to go and seek external funding. Thank goodness, because I think that would be That's probably stressful. the better way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but then turning around to actually be able to only sell like that tiny proportion of what it is that you know that you want to build. That's actually incredibly challenging because you want to just blurt out to the customer, like we've got all of these things, just, you know, be patient, but you can't do that, you know? Certainly not. Yeah. And you have to be careful with, what is, you know, we, you may have even heard this term, the concept of vaporware and the software world is notorious in the sales side for selling something that doesn't quite exist yet. And we're just hoping that engineering will ship it. And that's a very dangerous game to play at any level, but particularly at a startup level where your company's at or my company's at where you don't actually know when you'll be able to deliver that. And you have to be really careful about how you message to your customers, because at the end of the day, you want to, I think our sort of search in the early years, and this is kind of what they talk about when they mean product market fit, is the search of a startup in an early few years is what is the cocktail of features that is most useful that people will pay for? Right. (laughs) And that may not actually be, you know, we may, if we spent all of our time trying to build the whole vision, we might miss the boat because we didn't get any customer feedback. Mm. I think that's a really, really good point. And understanding actually, you might want to build certain features, but it's actually not what people will consume. So that, that build, measure, learn, that feedback thing is 
Absolutely. You can't overstate its importance. Absolutely not. You know, honestly, it still boggles my mind. Sometimes I see this on Twitter where I'll see a founder who said, you know, I'm wrapping up shop, my startup is closing. And some of their reflection is, you know, we spent two years in stealth mode, right? Or And I think it's very cool and trendy to say that you're in stealth mode. And I think that's so stupid, to be frank, <laughs> you know, to be really blunt, that your startup should not fail because you failed to show it to customers, right? Startups fail for lots of other reasons that are, you know, some legitimate, some, you know, negligence, if you will. But showing our customers where we are and getting real feedback is really the only way to know whether or not we have hit on a problem that is worth solving to this market, right? And that's another thing about startups that I think people, maybe a difference between small businesses and startups in a small business that is not, I call them kind of real money businesses, right? You are charging for a service or a product and people are paying you for it. You don't spend more than you make ideally. <laughs> Those kinds of businesses don't rely on cash infusions to grow, right? And in some ways that is a way more awesome, in my view, way to run a business for a lot of reasons. But with venture-funded startups, you are essentially on a constant treadmill and you've got to be showing that kind of traction and growth in a way that early, you know, other small businesses don't have to. And so it's even more imperative that you in a venture-funded startup have a big market to gain a little bit of traction in that market. With a small business, you can survive, you know, just serving a smaller market because your expenses are typically lower than in a, a software startup. Do you find the accountability then that comes with venture cap both, I guess, motivating, but at the same time, stressful? Oh, I absolutely think so. I think, you know, the concept, so many entrepreneurs, I know we're all a little bit nuts and very ambitious. And I always tell people like, there's something wrong with most founders, you know, <laughs> comically or truthfully, you know, <laughs> and hopefully as a founder, you know, what is wrong with you so that you can work around it with your team and you can be upfront about, you know, this is my little neuroses, you know, set of neuroses that is maybe problematic for you. <laughs> so let's work around that. But I like the word that you use accountability. I actually don't know that a lot of startups think about it that way, that when you are being offered investment capital, it really is a trade for you to meet those goals, right? And those are ideally, you know, KPIs, metrics that would get you to the next level, right? I think that a lot of founders misinterpret that the next level is just raising more money. The next level is actually trying to wean oneself off of venture capital in in my mind where you can actually have a revenue generating profitable company that is not the vision of everybody and so i won't you know argue with others for that but for me i think you know what i would love to see is that for my company is that we've intelligently used an infusion of capital to become a profitable big software business Great. So what's your big, hairy, audacious goal then for either the company or for yourself? Oh, gosh, I feel like I have so many of them. And it really depends on the timing, right? <laughs> I, we have some big goals for this year, in particular, you know, I'm really driving Edify toward some revenue targets. Hopefully, our big goal is to reach over 1.5 million in sales this year, and have certain accounts under our belt, who are customers and loving our product. I think, for me, personally, 
I have always been very motivated by the mechanics of business. I really love the opportunity to pull levers, push buttons, see what happens. I get very motivated by rapid change. And I love all of that VUCA stuff that we talked about. I'm very comfortable in those kinds of environments. And so I don't necessarily have a, you know, I want to sell Edify for 10 bazillion dollars kind of a goal, which is is an okay goal, by the way. I think many people start software companies knowing that they would like to reach an outcome, some kind of exit. Statistically, it's very unlikely just the way that software companies work, but that can be very motivating to people. My more intrinsic motivation is that I alluded to it earlier, that software is becoming so prevalent in our lives that we literally, I think, don't understand the implications of how that software is integrated into our lives from privacy to finance to the way that we serve and work with each other that I think we need to take, you know, serious looks at the way that we build software and make sure that it's actually ethical and healthy. And I think one of the best ways to start systemically, I always like to try to solve things from a systemic perspective is to help onboard engineers better so that they can ask better questions, right? For so long, engineers have come into companies and actually been treated like very highly paid code monkeys where it's like, okay, well, you don't really need to know much about how our customer uses it. Just do this thing, right? Build this thing. And it's like, "Mm, well, that's how you end up with you know, some really not great products or algorithms that do bad things or, you know, things that we've seen in the news recently. And when you don't have the people who are the builders of that tooling really cognizant of the bigger context, I think you were missing out on opportunity to build the right kind of software for humanity. So I want to see that Edify can have even a modicum positive impact on that vision. Are you seeing trends in your industry then? Are you seeing trends towards that actually coming to fruition? That is also an interesting question. You know, what was very interesting, at least in the US, in 2016, I really started to see a tech response toward what I would call unethical tech or what even the tech industry started to think of as unethical tech. I think it was really driven by the 2016 elections in this country and how people suddenly became very aware of how their databases would be used or how their products would be used. You probably saw, you know, headlines around ICE contracts, this kinds of thing, you know, engineers wanting to put their foot down and say, I don't want to work for a company that provides a service or a software to this kind of organization. I find that unethical or problematic. Unfortunately, I think it's died down a little bit. And I think what's replaced it is that the market that we're in right now is so incredibly frothy, if you will, that engineering salaries are way, way up, way like way more than they should be from an even an inflation standpoint. People will probably get upset with me <laughs> for saying that. But you know, when your mid-level salary range for a mid-level engineer is 250K USD, that's too high for where we're at right now in human development in our economy, actually. And the rise has been too fast and meteoric for it to be sustainable. And I see people dropping their sort of maybe higher motivations to focus more on what kind of job will give me the best paycheck and what kind of job will give me more of the flexibility and the autonomy that I want. Those are valuable things, but I would like to see a stronger response to what are the products that I'm going to be building? And is this aligned with my values as a person? 
I like that. It's the connection, really. It's about understanding the why at the heart of it. I mean, we've been very blessed in our company to have found a developer completely accidentally, by the way. And he has been the gift because he actually has the capacity to to understand where we're going. We mapped it all out and said, look, this is where we want to take it. And it was a little bit uncomfortable for us because he's like, well, what you've got now is not going to work at all, but please let me come back to you with some recommendations. So when he did come back, because we're out of industry, so my business partner is actually marketing and brand and I'm technical and accounting. My other partner is operations and leadership. And so when we're coming together, we're not tech design, but we kind of knew what we wanted and how it should work or how we perceived that it could work in terms of, you know, being able to do certain things. And he comes back, but we didn't have a name for it. And I think that's some of the issue too. And so when he comes back and he's describing, okay, I think we could do a headless CMS and this is how we can do. And we use React to be able to build it. And we're like, this is exactly what we have been trying to communicate to three other teams of developers for a long time. So that was just one person. And we actually felt understood for the first time in a very long time, which has given us us some good power. Unfortunately, it did set us back quite a bit of time to begin with. However, we're seeing the benefits of that now as we're able to roll out and implement things that we never even conceived of. We have a term that we call phase 20, like the stuff that we want in our 10-year plan. <laughs> so that gets all in the marked in the bucket of our phase 20. And so we're actually being able to pull some of the phase 20 bucket now into our current operations because we've now restructured how we can do it or things that we didn't consider technically feasible without quite a substantial rebuild we're actually being able to accommodate now. And so we're like, this is incredible. And it was because the who we're working with, he loves our culture and what we're trying to achieve for small business. And we wouldn't have had that without having that culture, really. Yeah, I really love that story. I'm so grateful that you shared it. It's actually very similar to Edify's story that, you know, we have a developer on our team now who is just so fired up about what we do, that he is constantly asking for customer feedback, constantly communicating about things. I'm so grateful to have him. And the way that he thinks about things is actually really different than how some of the former engineers we've had over over the, you know, last year and a half or so have thought about it. And the other thing I'll say is I think this is a very common experience, this sort of two steps forward, one step back with engineering for founders who are not engineers themselves, who are not writing the software on their own, because it is very hard to communicate. And the way that an engineer might think about a problem is going to be very different than how his or her peer might think about a problem. There's actually kind of a, a joke in the industry that every engineer is going to come into a code base and believe that the person who wrote it was absolutely insane and it all needs to be rewritten, right? <laughs> and that is probably not true <laughs> that there were lots of historical reasons something got made. But again, you know, it really takes somebody who's willing to ask good questions, willing to try to understand the bigger vision, you know, so that you can build the right feature set. It's such a game of, you know, or maybe not a game, but a dance of communication. And so I think having the right people on your team can really help. That's cool. So what do you like most then, or what do you find is your driver for building and continuing to grow Edify? Yeah, I think it goes back to that vision for me. You know, it goes back to being really interested in the intersection of how technology can make our lives better, but how I don't know that it always is right now. And I think systemically, you know, some people might choose to start somewhere else, but for me, I chose to start with something that I knew very well. You know, adult learning, onboarding is sort of the kernel, the place that you can start 
helping somebody understand all of these things in a company and in a project. And that's what's really motivating. It's so exciting when we're on a customer demo, for example, and they're like, oh my gosh, I didn't think I'd be able to do this, or I'd never thought about doing it that way. This is great, right? Or it just makes so much sense. This is so much better than our checklist. And those are the things that kind of keep you motivated, even in hard days or frustrating times. That's it. So I guess what's one of the most important lessons then that you've learned in your career? That would be hard to narrow down. There are so many. I should probably be writing them down more frequently (laughs) than I do. I think, and this is probably something that I actually learned a long, long time ago, even before starting at too many paid jobs in high school and then in college, that it is better to try to ask questions and listen than to solution first, right? Meaning that if you have just quickly poked your head around and and tried to observe something, and then you think you know the answer and you're trying to build the solution in your head, or you're getting into conversation with somebody and you are just trying to solve it immediately, or they're even interpersonally, you know, outside of work or inside of work, somebody's telling you a problem that they have and you're suddenly like, oh, I can, we can solve that by, you know, that's going to limit you and it's going to limit the potential of what the two of you or your team can do together because you haven't taken the time to really understand the situation. And so I think this goes back to what we were talking about with getting your work and your product, even if it's an MVP and it's ugly in your mind, getting it out so that you can ask people about it and you can listen. And you said something earlier about whether or not what your vision is, you know, is that what people want to pay for? And you might want to build something, the solution in your mind is not what the market wants, right? And so it's an important balance of trying to be taking a stance and a lead in the industry and actually providing a service or a solution that is marketable and that people want to use or need to use. And I think that comes down to listening. Yeah, that's great because you can hear without actually listening at times as well. Absolutely. Is there any advice that you'd like to give to any aspiring company owners? Other than the listening and getting absolutely getting out, you know, to your potential customers, even if it's just like cold going to LinkedIn, you know, and asking somebody, you know, hey, would you provide some feedback on this? I think the next best piece of advice is that we haven't really gone here in the conversation, but working all night and all weekend will not change the outcome of your business. It will not. In fact, it will probably make it worse. So when you reach hard times, as we've talked about some of in in this call, it's actually better to stop and rest, I think, and, and let your brain do some work behind the scenes, let your body do some work behind the scenes and come back tomorrow with some fresh eyes. That's actually something that's incredibly valuable and something we subscribe to as well. Rest can be the best thing ever. Yeah, absolutely. I sometimes have to admonish some of my team members when I see them working late on Slack or something like that. It's like, hey, this is probably not going to help you. You know, granted, not everybody works at the same hours. So you just want to build a culture as a business owner where people are flexible, but not overworking themselves. So as we close this out, is there anything else you'd like to share? I just want to say thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation. I really enjoyed it. It's great to be in conversation with someone who shares some of the same values and ways of looking at business building. No, that's been fantastic. And I guess, would you like to share how people could find you? 
Sure. Yeah. If you are interested in Edify or in engineering onboarding or other technical kinds of learning, you can find us at getedify.co. I'm on Twitter at Kristen Mave and on LinkedIn with Kristen Buchanan. That's fantastic. So thank you very much for your time. And actually, I hope we do get to continue you know, unpacking some of this conversation as well later. And um, I would love that. definitely like to stay connected because I definitely think there's a lot of stories to share. I would love that. That'd be wonderful, Sheree. No, that'd be awesome. Okay, well, I'll let you go. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, that's everything small business for today. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to stay up to date with our show, please subscribe or follow in your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. If you know someone who might enjoy this podcast, please share it with them or share it on your socials and tag us. Until next time, this is everything small business. 